Any any prayer requests tonight? By the way, I've got to remind. That was the second thing. There was an. This is it. Um, and I wanted to do this again. If we do go public and they film it, I just want to remind everybody that I I I'm aware that um, that prayers sometimes get private. And, I mean, sometimes prayers can take us into a family. I'm always glad to go there. But I also know it's um, it's not always. Um, it might inhibit some people from asking for prayers because it will go public. So remember what I asked ages ago. If you have a prayer and you'd like it to remain private among us, say something. I'll turn the recorders off. We can say the prayer and we can come back. I'm glad. I'm. I don't want to lose the intimacy. I'm glad for the humility that you guys show. I'm. I'm so grateful. I'm inspired by your courage often when you ask for prayers. But I wouldn't want to lose them because you're embarrassed to be public. So remember that if, if you have a prayer and you'd like it to be public, do not be embarrassed and don't feel like you're being cowardly. Um, we're protecting an intimacy. So let me know and we will say it um, privately and then I'll come back on and complete our prayers because I'm glad to say the prayers. I don't know if I'm, you know, you know that I'm on public, and I, I know that people have come from all over the world. We had hits from England and Europe on Hamlet and Faulkner, and people are, they're not coming online, but they're visiting the classes. I don't know if saying prayers is going to discourage anybody, because they're going to say, this Catholic guy? Who wants, to, who wants to hear some Catholic guy talk about Hamlet? It's not going to stop me. We're going to say prayers. We're going to say prayers, we're going to do our lyrics, and we're going to talk about works. Um, so I want the prayers to be a part of what we do to the public because um, I want people to understand that faith and reason are not to be separated. Absolutely not. But I also want to protect um, our intimacies as a group, whatever we share. So if any of you um, would just remember that, if you'd like to keep the prayers private, say something. I'm, I just want to protect that. It's not a small thing for me. <clears throat> okay? Any prayers tonight, private or public? Please uh, pray for my family, the Shree family, and uh, Joe Gorman's soul again, if we can pray for him. Joe, I'm sorry, Melody. Joe. That's okay. He, Joe Gorman. Yeah, but the circumstances again? Uh, he, he passed away, yeah, okay. and his he and his family had been um, right. at odds. Right, So right, right. And to console the family. Okay. okay. Uh, you should know, by the way, I'm, you, I'm sure you know this, so it doesn't need to be said, but I'm going to say it. You know that I'm praying for you all the time because I know how badly you need it. I, I, I trust you know that I'm only saying that to you because I enjoy beating you over the head and I know you can take it. Honey, I need it. Don't call we, me honey. Don't. I, we need it. I know. So. We all do. We all do. Okay, we, all do. Well, we all do. Thank you. Keep. I, I hope all of you will keep Suzanne and me and I, I think I asked last week for special prayers for me and I'm asking them seriously I just spiritual struggles are they don't stop they don't stop so I'm um, asking prayer seriously for us and particularly for me I would be really grateful to you all 
Okay, name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life from you and for your presence this day. Um, the last week has, um, has taken us to the founding of the church. Um, you're leaving, you're commissioned to the disciples, you're given Peter the giving Peter the keys. Um, you're sending everybody out into the world. <laughs> Here's my pitch tonight. Peter said on the Transfiguration on the Mount, let's stay here. Let's build hut here. I think that's what's being asked of us to get out of the church. Um, it's easy to go to church like Peter staying on the mountain. He said, let's stay. And Christ said, you have to go down. So I'm asking a strength for all of us to go down, to come out of the mountain on the church with you, to go down, face whatever deaths. They can be small. Sometimes saying a little thing um, asks of us a death, to put away ourselves so that we can do it. So strengthen us all, please, to go down, to go out into the world, carry you with us. Um, Monday was um, in honor of Mary as the mother of the church. You were on the cross. Um, um, you handed her to John and said, here's your mother. She is the mother of disciples, the mother of the church. She watches over all of us. Mary, pray for us, please, all of us, um, that we can take your church, our church to the world, make it living in all that we do. Let us be Christ bearers. All of us. Um, I ask for prayers for all of us, um, for Suzanne and me, for our kids, um, for everybody here, particularly for Melody. I know she um, she carries a large heart for herself and her family. Um, let her know your presence in that large heart of hers. Um, to take all fear away absolutely all fear, um, to know a joy, it's what's at the heart of Chaucer, to know a joy in everything she does, and be with her family. Um, draw them closer together in you, whatever obstacles have to be overcome to do that. Do that, please. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read from the last section of um, Robinson poem, Isaac and Archibald. We should be able to finish it next week. Um, let me ask before, are, do, all of you, do all of you look at the notes that I send out the afternoon of the class? Do you? Okay, because I'm not sure if I should be doing that. Um, if any of you want the study guide, if you could make a donation, we'd be grateful. Um, I'm. I'm just gonna. If I'm gonna hold it to the, on or the email, because I do not want to make those study guides available to a public. Um, so if you would just honor that, keep it. Keep the study guides to yourself. Let's do Isaac and Archibald. Um, we should be able to um, finish it next week. Um, Remember that the young boy had, had just arrived at Archibald's and they'd gone into this dark cellar 
and Isaac was enjoying the wine. Cider. Or the cider, sorry. And um, there are all these descriptions of these subtle gestures in the men. Their eyes, their mouths, little things that make it clear to the boy that something more is going on than he can grasp. But he makes us aware of it. So we're looking at these two men growing older through the eyes of a young 12-year-old. So, and I've suggested before, it's all about death, it's all about dying. Um, the young boy at 12 can't fully appreciate it, but Robinson's presented it in such a way that we can feel something is happening, even if we can't um, name it with words. And that's part of the beauty of poetry, that it, it can help express things that we very often feel that we can't find words for. So the journey continues, um, and we'll finish it next week, okay? This is um, part four on page six. Now, Archibald, said Isaac, when we stood outside again, I have it in my mind that I shall take a sort of little walk to stretch my legs and see what you are doing. One of the things I love about Robinson, by the way, is how ordinary his language is. You know, some people think language or poetry is fancy and above us, and it's Shakespeare and it's Renaissance. And Robinson, there's, you can't read five lines without feeling we're in a colloquial world. He's, the language is our spoken language. That's the beauty of it. He's showing us the beauty of our spoken tongue. These are words we use every day. The idioms are ours. He's not above us. He's not being fanciful. He's using our language. And he's, give, he's, showing it, he's showing an eloquence and a beauty to the language. The source of all words, the source of all words is the word. Christ is ultimately poetry. He is beauty and order and harmony all in one. He never spoke words that were um, noise or cacophonous or, okay? So hear the language, just enjoy it as, as I read it. I have it in my mind that I shall take a sort of little walk to stretch my legs and see what you are doing. You stay and rest your back and tell the boy a story. Tell him about the time at Stafford's cabin 40 years ago when four of us were snowed up for 10 days with only one dried haddock. Tell him all about it and be wary of your back. Now I will be going along. I looked up then at Archibald and as I looked I saw just how his nostrils widened once or twice and then grew narrow. I can hear today the way the old man chuckled to himself, not wholesomely, not wholly to convince another of his mirth, as I can hear the lonely sigh that followed. But at length he said, The orchard now is the place for us. We may find something like an apple there, and we shall have the shade at any rate. So there we went, and there we laid ourselves where the sun could not reach us, and I champed a dozen of worm-blighted astrakhans, while Archibald said nothing, merely told the tale of Stafford's cabin, which was good, though Master Chili, after his own phrase, aimed for day like that. But other thoughts were moving in his mind, imperative and writhing to be spoken. I could see the glimmer of them in a glance or two, cautious or else unconscious, that he gave over his shoulder, Stafford and the rest, that's an old song now, and Archibald and Isaac are old men. Remember, boy, that we are old. Whatever we have gained or lost or thrown away, we are old men, 
You look before you and we look behind. And we are playing life out in the shadow. But that's not all of it. The sunshine lights a good road yet before us if we look. And we are doing that when least we know it. For both of us are children of the sun, like you, and like the weed there at your feet. The shadow calls us and it frightens us, we think. But there's a light behind the stars, and we old fellows who have dared to live, we see it, and we see the other things, the other things. Yes, I have seen it come these eight years and these ten years, and I know now that it cannot be for very long that Isaac will be Isaac. You have seen, young as you are, you must have seen the strange, uncomfortable habit of the man. He'll take my nerves and tie them in a knot sometimes, and that's not Isaac. I know that, and I know what it is. I get it here a little, in my knees, and Isaac here. The old man shook his head regretfully and laid his knuckles three times on his forehead. That's what it is. Isaac is not quite right. You see it, but you don't know what it means. Thousand little differences. No, you do not know them, and it's well you don't. You'll know them soon enough. God bless you, boy. You'll know them, but not all of them. Not all. So think of them as little as you can. There's nothing in them for you or for me, but I am old and I must think of them. I'm in the shadow, but I don't forget the light, my boy, the light behind the stars. Remember that. Remember that I said it. And when the time that you think far away shall come for you to say it, say it, boy. Let there be no confusion or distrust in you, no starling, snarling of a life half lived, nor any cursing over brokered things, that your complaint has been the ruin of. Live to see clearly, and the light will come to you, and as you need it. But there, there, I'm going it again, as Isaac says, <coughs> and I'll stop now before you go to sleep. Only be sure that you growl cautiously, and always wear the shadow may not reach you. Never shall I forget, long as I live, the quaint, thin crack in Archibald's voice, the lonely twinkle in his little eyes, or the way it made me feel to be with him. I know I lay and looked for a long time down through the orchard and across the road, across the river and the sun-scorched hills that ceased in the blue forest, where the world ceased with it. Now and then my fancy caught a flying glimpse of a good life beyond, something of ships and sunlight, streets and singing, Troy falling, and the ages coming back, and ages coming forward. Archibald and Isaac were good fellows in old clothes, and Agamemnon was a friend of mine. Ulysses coming home again to shoot with bows and feathered arrows made another, and all was as it should be. I was young. Here's the test for next week. I'm giving you guys a test. Beginning of class. How do you describe what's happening? And I'm asking that seriously. I mean, it's how would you describe this little, this young twelve-year-old is watching these two old men growing old, and he knows he has a sense that death is approaching. Both of the men look at each other and are aware that something's wrong. Suzanne and I look at each other that way a lot more these days, <laughs> just constantly. Um, 
something's wrong with you. What's, um, the boy's aware, and each of the men is aware of the other, but they don't seem to be as aware that there may be something wrong with them. You know, it's Isaac, or it's Archibald, or, but it's not me. So he's watching this, and there's a sort of comic aspect to it, but there's this under-spirit running through the poem that death is imminent. So where's it going? How's it going to end? Where's it taking us? Um, just keep that in your mind, okay? I'm going to ask each of you to write a five-page essay at the beginning of the class next. <laughs> and I don't care if you're going on a trip, Melody, you still have to write it. Okay, let's, let's go. Um, there's just a couple of background observations that I want to make for you guys. Um, these are um, <laughs> almost absurd generalizations, but I think they're worth saying and hearing. So I'd, I'd like you to hear this with some sense of perspective because you guys have been doing this now for quite a while. We read the Iliad, the Odyssey. We started with Shakespeare because I wanted to start with our world. So we started with Merchant of Venice and Othello. That's the commercial republic. We located ourselves in time and immediately went back and did the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and the Divine Comedy. So we did the whole epic tradition. We've got Troy behind us falling. You know it now. You've experienced it. Not as an idea. You've lived through scenes with the Greek mind, the Roman mind, the Roman mind, the Italian mind. We read Boethius, which prepared us for Dante, and we're doing Chaucer. So we, we left a pagan world behind, and we've entered a Christian world. The threshold marking that shift is, is in, our, in, our, in terms of our class, um, is, is Boethius and Dante. And I want to just focus on Dante for a second. We've done Boethius recently, and um, both Dante and Chaucer love Boethius. Ch you can't read a line of Chaucer and not find Boethius in it. That's how essentially is to these stories. But Dante broke the epic tradition in one major respect. He did what all the epic poets did in carrying the past forward. He did it with Virgil. So many of the metaphors and similes were from the past, from the Iliad, the Odyssey, um, Aeneid. But Dante did something the epic poets did not do. He, he let himself be the speaker, the hero of that epic, so we moved out of an idealized world in, in which men looked back to an, a previous world when men were, had this great nobility into a real world. He faints, he passes out, he cries. Um, he's a new kind of epic hero. And, and part of the reason I think we admire him is because we know that even though all of this is hard for Dante, he has to do it. He's called to do it. He's called to follow Paul into the third heaven. Virgil made that clear. Dante said, Aeneas did this. Paul did it. Those are great men. I'm not a great man. I can't do this. Virgil says, knock it off and get going. <laughs> You're going anyway. So Dante had to do it. He had to go down and look at hell. He had to do it. He had to go down. And it prepared him for going up and then finally into the heavens. But he stands on the verge of the modern world in the sense that he made the present the focus of his epic, not the past. And he made himself 
the hero with all of his failings. So Boethius Dante and now Chaucer, Chaucer loved Dante and he loved Boethius. And he's very much influenced by both of them. When we do the Canterbury Tales, we're going into the present. Chaucer is telling the story. He even makes up one of the company. He's even going to tell his own story, the Topaz story, and it's a ridiculous story. It's probably two or three pages long. And, um, and the, uh, the host says, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> he wants Dante to, he can't stand it anymore. Dante's so bad. Now, this is the writer of the Canterbury Tales. Chaucer. This is the writer of the Canterbury Tales. Um, this is the writer of the Canterbury Tales. And he can't tell a story. He uses a variety of rhyming structures in all of his tales. Most of them are rhyme royals, rhyming couplets. And he starts off to tell a story, and it can't go anywhere. I, I, we're going to talk about it next week, but, but, but just to show you, he's part of the company. The stories take place in the present. They're all going on a pilgrimage to the Shrine of St. Thomas. So there's a, a religious backstory, but the tales themselves are anything but religious. In fact, in some ways, they're a little bit scandalous. We're going to see some of that tonight. So what's he doing? Um, you know, these are questions we have to ask. Here's the point I want to make tonight, and I, I, I just want to make this as strong as I can. This will be the last work we read of United Christendom. Shortly after Chaucer writes, Christendom will break apart. The Christian world as we knew it in the Middle Ages, some of the minor um, reformers, Huss and Wycliffe, are on the horizon already. They're already writing. Um, Wycliffe, I think, is called the morning star of the Reformation. He precedes Luther and Calvin, and there's almost nothing Luther and Calvin say that doesn't come from Wycliffe. So we're we're stones throw away from the Reformation. Now, I want everybody to hold on to this because, in one sense, the claim that I'm going to make, Chaucer is speaking at the height of the Middle Ages when it achieved this perfection that was amazing in poetry with Chaucer, in St. Thomas with philosophy. So there's this extraordinary achievement we're experiencing at this point. Chaucer's at the height of it, okay? So I want to—I can't say that strongly enough. In one sense, and this is the claim I made in my um, in my outline, my outline, I think he's showing us what a healthy faith should be. I'm going to say that again. I think he's showing us what a healthy faith should be. If we're living Boethius, there is no bad fortune. None, if we're living it, no matter what goes on, our faith is God's bringing some good out of it. Then there's every reason to be glad. The problem we have is learning to reform our emotions because our emotions are so often disordered. We're going to see that everywhere in all the, all the stories. So I've... So here's, here's, the, here's the problem. You, when you read Chaucer, it, when I read him, it's hard not to laugh. He's just so funny. And yet, he's showing us he can only be as funny as he is because he has such an extraordinary faith. 
when you get into the Reformation in the modern world, we are beset by despair. Absolutely beset. If you read Luther and Calvin, it seems to me, and particularly Luther, I mean, Luther's view of the world is horribly pessimistic. So dark. All, man's depraved. He's depraved in essence. It's only by God's grace that you get out of it. Um, but man by nature. So the natural world is taken away from us. Chaucer's working in the natural world. He's showing everything going on in the natural world. So he's the last image of a, of a, united, a nation united in its faith before everything will break down. I just want everybody to not lose sight of that because we're going to be reading funny stories. Okay? The other thing is this. When we finish Chaucer, here's where we're going. We're going to read Shakespeare. We've already done Merchant and Othello and Anthony Cleopatra. Here's what I'd like to do. Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. Here's what I'd like to do with you guys. I'd like to start with Hamlet, and we'll do King Lear, and maybe Pericles, and for sure Winter's Tale. Those four plays. I know that's a lot of Shakespeare. Let me tell you why, just briefly. This is Chaucer. We're in the high Middle Ages. Uh, this is as close as you will get to a man having a faith that is greater than any problem he faces. We're going to be reading stories about adultery, about murder. Um, we're going to be reading stories in which somebody's going to fart, pass gas. We're going to read another story where somebody's going to be branding somebody's rear end, where somebody's going to pass gas on spikes, a wheel, the spikes of a wheel, or the spokes of a wheel, and it will divide down into 12 parts. So we're in, a, we're in a world that is accepting of the body and its foolishness, you know, it, all that humiliated Dante. We are not in a Puritan world. We are not. The world that we've entered, the world that we will enter with Shakespeare will be moving us towards a modern world in dark corridors, in a kind of Puritanism and a rationalism that sets the terms of our condition. It's what we have lived with all of our lives. When we do Hamlet, we're going to be reading one of the most, one of the most profound critiques of the Protestant mind that I know of. The whole of Hamlet is based on a private revelation and it's set the prince, Hamlet, has just come back from Wittenberg. Historically, what's the importance of Wittenberg for Western civilization? And it's where Mark Luther nailed his yep. 95 greatest yep. Yep. Hamlet just comes back from Wittenberg at the start of it. Is Shakespeare doing that by accident? Then you don't understand that man. He's giving us one of the most profound uh, openings into the Protestant spirit. And listen to this. He does not do it by idea. He does not do it by concept. It's not an abstraction. He shows the implications of living out a Protestant world. It's not an idea. We enter this world through an experience because we're going to experience everything the way Hamlet does. And what sets him in motion is a private revelation. In King Lear, Shakespeare is going to take us back 800 years before Christ. King Lear was an actual king. By the way, Hamlet was an actual prince. King Lear was an actual king 800 years before Christ. Why did he do that? I believe, I mean, I hope I can show it to you, King Lear will be one of the greatest Christian plays you will ever read. 
it's speaking, it's speaking principally to an audience that's become increasingly non-Christian. He can't even use that language anymore because the audience doesn't believe, just like ours. What's he doing? I think he's showing profound Christian truths to a non-Christian audience. We'll do Pericles and Winter's Tale, which were two of his latter plays that, all, that I call, the literary world calls them romances. I call them sacramental plays. Pericles is going to be the only man in all of literature who will experience the music of the spheres and find a rest in it. Dante was a part of Dante's experience in the Paradiso, but nothing's made of it. In Pericles, Pericles, who suffers from beginning of that play to the end, will hear the music of the spheres and be at rest. It's an extraordinary, mystical experience. It's miraculous. Winter's Tale is the most perfect, I think, of Shakespeare's plays. It's the most perfect ex expression of a paradisal forgiveness that I've ever experienced. We experience that forgiveness in Dante's Paradiso, but it's in abstract ways. You know, they, they've left Eden and ascended into the heavens. We're going to actually experience one of the most amazing scenes of a reconciliation between a husband and a wife and a forgiveness. I, I don't know if it's equal. So we're going to do those four plays. The reason I'm mentioning this now is we're at that verge where we're... We, Chaucer will, along with Dante and Boitris, carry a Christian rule forward. <clears throat> but right now we're at that point where it's all going to break down. So even while it's terribly funny, and it is, and we should laugh, I'm just saying, be aware that this is the significance of this moment. That after this, when we pick up Shakespeare, we are in the Renaissance and the modern world. We're at the beginning of our world. We're, we're back where we picked up when we started. Okay? Any comments or questions or... I, I don't want to darken... Chaucer, because he's just too funny. But I really would like you to have that perspective. Um, because in one sense, Chaucer is living, fulfilling Boethius. He's showing what the Catholic faith is that runs through Boethius. God is good. There's no evil in the world. The Protestant mind will say man's depraved. He's, he is, in essence, evil. That couldn't be farther from a Catholic's mind. So what we're reading is through Boethius, Dante, Chaucer. We're in a very Catholic world. Dante, or Boethius loved Dante, he loved Boethius. They were both comedy. Here's, here's the other thing, and this goes to this whole question of genre that I've been speaking about sort of on the margins all along. Dante's Commedia was called the Divine Comedy. If you, and I'm, I'm assuming all of you felt this. If you read Hell, it's it's hard not to laugh. It's also hard not to be frightened. You can't read Chaucer and not laugh. And you can't read Dante without laughing. And here's the reason. Because hell is no longer tragic the way it was for the pagans. For the pagans, death ended everything. It had a finality. And very often they saw it as a matter of fulfilling a destiny or a fate. It was the end of all things. So it was dark. It was burdened with darkness. 
we have left that world behind. People are in hell, not because they're destined or because they can't overcome things, because Christ overcame death. There's nothing he didn't defeat. So to stay with him is to have a power to overcome whatever our demons are, whatever particular demons any one of us has to carry. Yeah? Um, the ancient world didn't have that. So death had a tragic aspect to it. That was taken away with Boethius. It was taken away with Dante. It's taken away now with Chaucer. <clears throat> There's a humor now because <clears throat> our faith is in a God who overcame everything. So the choice man has is real. He can turn from God, but it's not because he's forced or he has to. He does it by choice. If he does, he goes to hell. I mean, what you can say of that is how stupid. You know, if you had a choice between living in misery or what kind of choice is that? So there's a, the genres are not just literary names. The change in genre, the shift from the tragic world um, to a comic world is not a merely arbitrary or superficial thing. It speaks to something much deeper. That there is a spirit in Christianity that's op available, given to all men, because Christ took on all of our sins. He bore them all, all of them, and he defeated them. So when any of us feel overwhelmed by our sins, I know I do, times. I'm assuming all of you do. I don't. Um, but if you do, if any of us does, we know that our answer is to turn to him, to find in him. That's why he came. So there's a whole comic aspect, a quality to Dante and Chaucer that marks the Christian Middle Ages. <clears throat> and we are right now at the height of them when they're all about to fall apart. So let me, let me stop. Any <coughs> Any questions about any of that? Michael, you've got that puzzling over probing expression on your face. You've got a question here or a concern or something? No. Melody, I already know I don't even have to ask because I know you do. Come on, what is it? Well, I was just thinking as you were talking about this is the last um, great poet before the church falls apart and or the church splinters. And I thought about, you know, everybody is making fun of everyone in this book. They all yeah, take right. turns. But it's, um, I mean, although they don't enjoy it necessarily, it is kind of all in good fun and, and Chaucer... Um, ties it up at the end of each chapter talking about God working through these folks. But as the church splinters, it begins that it begins to become apparent that people are blamed for their sins. Like you said, the Protestants feel like there's something wrong with us. And I think you can see that in the world today too, that instead of looking at our faults and laughing and say, oh, uh, you yeah. know, we're all in the same family, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, we yeah. give each other, yeah. we just look at each other's faults and think, wow, you're a horrible person and yeah, I hate yeah, yeah, you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, what a good comment. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so appropriate. Yeah, yep. Anybody else before we take a look at Chester? 
Okay, um, a couple of, um, if you've looked, got my notes, you've got them in front of you. Um, what to touch on here? Um, the journey of the pilgrims to, Can or to Canterbury is a journey of faith. So the backstory to the whole of the Canterbury Tales is a pilgrimage. Um, it's the poet, interestingly, who brings them together. I'm not tooting my horn again about poetry, it's, it's just a fact. If you look at the, I mean going back to what Melody just said, if you look at the individuals, they're all very individualistic. They quarrel, they snap at each other, they want to get back at each other, um, they want to get vengeance, you know, so they're, they're all sniping at each other often. Um, but the poet unites them. Um, the host is the instrument, he's the one who will oversee it, and you know, the Tabard Inn host will oversee the tales. But it's the poet who gives a voice to everybody, and it's really important to remember that. Chaucer himself makes a point of saying, he's trying to be as faithful as he can to tell the stories as he heard them. And yet we know that that's true and not true, because everything that he expresses is in rhyme, and we know that the people who told the stories didn't speak in rhyme. But it seems to me, remember, I, I made the same point about Othello. Remember, Othello made the most beautiful speeches to Desdemona of any Shakespeare hero that I know. And he said he's rude of speech. He comes from an uncultivated world. He's not educated. He doesn't belong to Venice. Um, what Shakespeare's doing with his poetry, I think, is expressing those things that Othello wouldn't have had words to express, that there are there are depths of feelings in us we don't have the power to get to or the words the poet so often does so even if Chaucer is saying he's um, telling the stories exactly as he heard them I think we have to say yes he is the language is colloquial it's the voice of the pilgrims it's their voices we don't have the middle English but it's a translation but but it's their idioms it would you if if we did read it in middle English you'd hear the different idioms of the different people. But tying them together are these rhyme schemes. And I suggested last week that the rhyme schemes are not artificial. They're an oral equivalent of Boethius's principle. That there is this constant good at work in the world, no matter how bad things go. And my illustration of that last week was the description of um, our seat's burial. I'm going to go back to it just because I, I love the point. Um, remember at the, very, at the very end, sorry, at the very end of the Night's Tale, um, when our seed is being um, buried in the, and they're holding a funeral for him, this towards the end of the Night's Tale. But how they made the funeral fires flame, or what the trees by number or by name, oak, fir tree, birch, aspen, poplar too, hex and alder, willow, elm and yew, box chestnuts plain, oral, thorn and lime, beech, hazel, whipple trees, I lack the time. There's no way to read that and not feel the joy, even while he's describing a dirge, a, you know, a funeral, a funeral. And what idiot would speak for a funeral by naming all the trees that are around him. I mean, it, it's just, it's so funny. Um, and yet it's all appropriate. None of us are going to go, how stupid, how, you know. We enjoy it. It's, it's, 
he he describes the weeping of the women, the weeping of the men, you know, all the gestures. He he, but but he does it in this with this faithful spirit. I don't know what other word to give it. Um, so the rhymes are not just rhymes. I I made the suggestion take away the rhymes and have a poet describe that same scene, we would be left with feelings of sadness, sorrow. So one of the points that I made last night, or last time, that I want to underscore, Chaucer does things in, in a way that helps us distance ourselves from what's going on. To detach ourselves while becoming emotionally involved in it at the same time. If we don't, the tendency is to let our feelings get wrapped up, to wrap us up in whatever the circumstances are. So it's not that he's denying feelings, he's not denying the passions, he's not doing that. That's stoic, not Christian. He's giving the feelings, the emotions their place, but he's doing it in a way, such a way to help us detach ourselves. Is that clear? You know, we could we could look at the mass. Here you guys, I mean let me um, look at the Mass. The Mass does exactly the same thing. Every Mass is headed towards the crucifixion, the sacrifice. All the prayers, they go to that moment. Um, I don't know about you guys, there are times, after, particularly if, I, if I'm a Eucharistic minister and I you know, am delivering, I'll very often come back to the pew teary. I am just so humbled by what goes on. You know, that we're in the middle of this extraordinary thing that's happening. Um, Christ gave up his life. We're invited to share in it. So we're emotionally involved in what goes on and detached at the same time. Is that fair to say? I mean, would you take away the... The Protestants don't want the ritual. I can't see it without the ritual. Take away the ritual and there's nothing there. It's like having a graduation with no ritual or having a funeral service with no ritual. Take away the ritual and we're left with our passions. God... Then where will we hide? So, these are some of the things we looked at last week. Um, I want to underscore the role of courtly romance because it seems to me the first three stories in Canterbury Tales all deal directly with the theme of courtly romance. Um, If you remember my thoughts about it last week, courtly romance was the most important traditions of the Middle Ages, it was one of the most important traditions handed on from the Middle Ages to the modern world and destroyed. In the courtly romance tradition, the knight attempted to be like Christ, to serve his liege, his mistress, the woman, um, completely, to give his life to her completely. That meant he very often put her on a pedestal. I think it's one of the fail. I think it's one of the failings of the courtly romance. John Donne is very critical of it. Shakespeare is critical of it. And it's not because women are not good. It's, it's, it's that human women are not perfect either. Um, but in the courtly romance tradition, a knight declared his love and his fidelity. He would be faithful. But very often that took place outside of marriage because marriage was a lawful act. It brought a man and, a man and woman together in law. What took place outside of marriage was to answer those passions that are illicit, lawless. 
Um, the Arthurian romances have at their center the courtly romance tradition. Lancelot loved Guinevere, the queen. Um, so that tradition, in one sense, defined the very best and some of the weaknesses of Christian love. Um, we saw, we, we experienced that tradition at the very opening of the Divine Comedy, because you remember when Dante goes into hell proper after he leaves the virtuous pagans, the first thing he experiences in the level of lust is Francesca and Paola. They were reading the courtly romance stories, and they were so taken by them, their desires were so awakened that they stopped reading. Dante is quite clear about what happens. We've talked about the, the danger of reading literature is that it can it arouse these desires. They went to bed. It was an adulterous relationship, and they didn't have time to confess. They're both in hell. So Dante is very clear on the subtleties of that. Um, we, we will encounter, remember when in uh, Picarda in heaven, she married four times, she had four lovers. She's in heaven. It was the unusual circumstance. You can't play around with those things, what Dante's saying, because they have no chance to confess. So the, the subtle, the, the motion from the world outside into the world of hell is very, very subtle. Chaucer's going to take up every sin that Dante reveals to us, the, ma the seven major sins, and he's going to find a humor in all of them, no matter what happens. Okay, let's, let's take a look at the stories. Here's the most important thing I can say about the first three stories. Every one of them deals in some sense with courtly love, but we're watching a declension um, take place, a movement from the very noblest in with, um, with Theseus and Hippolyta, Arsene and Palabon and uh, Emily, because remember... Both of the knights declare their love for her. They're going to be completely faithful. They give their lives over to her at the risk of dying. And both of them have, I mean, the great, the, the beauty about what, that's why I think this is about ordinary life. The beauty about what happens is both of them have to learn to die to their emotions themselves. Palamon loses the battle. He has, he has to give her up. Arceta wins the battle, but he dies by that accident, and he gives her up. And Emily has to learn to surrender her feelings as well for the marriage to take place. So what Chaucer is showing us exemplifies Christ perfectly. That the way, the only way to enter into a Christ-like love is through a complete self-surrender. And that was true for all of them, for Palamon, Arcita, and Emily. And remember that the, the, the wisest words, the wisdom spoken at the end by, um, by Theseus, remember after the year passes and, and, and um, Palamon and Emily are going to marry, on, on page 99 of the, well, um, I've got, the, I, I have an old edition and a new, and I, I'm trusting all of you have got the newer edition, but at the very end of the Knight's Tale, he says, um, he speaks about the first great cause, this is page 83, 
the first great cause and mover of all above when first he made the fairest chain of love. That's all Boethius. That is straight from Boethius. He talks about the way he's ordered the universe. 84, consider too how hard the stone we tread under our feet, that very rock and bed on which we walk is wasting as it lies. Everything, everything in nature is dying. Everything's mortal. We're all going to die. So every day of our lives, something's passing. That's going to be one of the great themes of Hamlet. Time will be when the broadest river dries and the great cities wane and last descend into the dust, for all things have an end. Go down a few lines on 84. Then hold it wise, for so it seems to me, to make a virtue of necessity, take in good part what we may not eschew, especially whatever things are due to all of us. He's saying exactly what Boethius said. Make a virtue of necessity. No matter how bad things are, use that occasion to get better ourselves. Accept those things that can't be changed. Take in good part what we mean out of shoe, especially whatever things are due to all of us. If something's due to us, a justice, let's say it's in our marriage, parents and children, community, it does not matter. We should be all working for a justice and, and working to bring a love to fulfill it. However we do. I mean, we're asked to, we're asked to see each occasion as an opportunity for us to get better. So whatever sufferings, whatever sorrows, whatever hardships, the ultimate, the ultimate answer to them was God going to a cross and asking us to share it. We are asked to, to see sufferings as an occasion for getting better. It can involve a gift of God if we will see it that way. So that was the truth. That was the, that was the end of the Knight's Tale. The point I want to make here is that in the Knight's Tale we had um, a story about an exemplary love and the very best things to bring out of it. Okay? In the Miller's Tale and in the Reeves' Tale we're, we've got stories about men sleeping with women. Um, in the, and here's what's happening. In the, in the Miller's Tale, it's very funny. It's, I mean, it's, it, it's unbelievable if you, if you think about the way the lover tricked the husband into, into getting away from his wife so he could make love with her. It's funny, it's ridiculous. When we get to the Reeves' Tale, it gets brutal. The men jump on the women, and the women are only too glad to be jumped on. Are you all following me? We're watching the, the very best of the courtly romance and the struggles at the center of it decline the, as it moves down into lower classes. It, 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 it's worked out in a kind of brutality, something physically a little bit meaner. The courtly romance, the courtesy, the sense of justice. Remember, remember both... Palamon and Arcee owed their lives to Theseus. He could have executed them when he found them in, in the forest. It was only because the women said spare them that they were spared. Justice should have been done. They should have been killed. In the Miller's Tale and, um, and the Reeves' Tale, there's a kind of justice for John in the, in the Miller's Tale, the husband, and the lovers, and a kind of justice. But it's... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? It, 
it's it's just a lower cast. It, it's more grotesque. It's 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 more physical. It's not as noble. It's not as dignified. So that's not an accident. That's not an accident. Chaucer's organized the story so that he presents to us the very best of something, and then we watch it um, in as it sort of inclines in its character from one story to the next. So let me stop and we'll look at the stories. Any questions about what we're doing? So every one of them is about love at a different level of society. The knight who is the noblest of the men and then the miller and then the reeves. Okay. Any qu no questions? Okay, let's um, let's go to the Miller's Tale on eighty-six. After the knight tells his tell, his tale, the miller who's been drinking too much um, thrusts himself into the company and wants to tell his. He's drunk. He's egotistic. He's self-centered. He's just heard this noble tale. He wants to put it down. Imagine a guy who's drunk who's just heard a story about nobility when he's drunk. He, he's going to have nothing good to say about it. And I, let me read that because one of the things that's going on in the prologues to each of the, between the, sta the, the story, is we see the, the storytellers engage themselves, so they connect the stories, but they also reveal themselves. So we learn a lot about them from, you know, those interstories. Um, and we learn a lot about the host, um, and even sometimes Chaucer, but... Let me look at the prologue with you guys for a second, because it's, it's funny. Page 87. The miller stands up drunk and insists that he's going to tell his story. I'll pay the knight his wages, not the monk. Our host perceived at once that he was drunk and said, Now hold on, Robin, dear old brother. We'll get some better man to tell another. You wait a bit. Let's have some common sense. God's soul I won't, said he. At all events, I mean to talk or else I'll go my way. I'm going to take my football and go home if, if you don't let me do this. So he, he pouts. <laughs> the host lets him go um, in the middle of the 87. But first I'm bound to say I'm drunk. I know it by my sound. And if the words get muddled in my tail, just put it down to too much Southwark ale. I will relate a legend and a life of an old carpenter and his wife. And how a student came and set his cap. The reeve looked up and shouted, Shut your trap. Because the reeve is a carpenter too. It's, it's, it's interesting. Don't pass this over. Because one of the beliefs of the Christian Middle Ages is that you, 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 were, you, you were what you did. If you were a carpenter, your work expressed who you were. It's part of who you are. So the, it, it's not just a arbitrary thing here that he's getting upset. He's getting upset because indirectly it's an insult of him. Um, Dreve looked up and shouted, shut your trap, give over with your drunken harlotry. It is a sin and foolishness, he said, to slander any minor man or bring a scandal on wives in general. Why can't you handle some other tale? There's other things besides. Um, the host tries to persuade him, but he, he won't listen. Um, and then finally he gives over on 88. He says, um, 
So if this tale had better not be heard, just turn the page and choose another sort. You'll find them here in plenty, long and short, many historical that will profess morality, good breeding, saintliness. Chaucer's making it clear. This is Chaucer, the poet speaking. You have a choice. You don't have to listen to this. If you don't like what you're hearing, choose a, go on, skip the pages. So here's Chaucer himself revealing something of himself um, um, when he goes on. The miller was a churl, I told you this, so was the reeve, and others some as well, and harlotry was all they had to tell. Consider then and hold me free of blame, and why be serious about a game? This partly the pleasure of all of them are playing a game. They're all going to tell a tale. Whoever tells the best one will get a dinner. And So the, the miller tells the tale of this young girl and a rumor named Nicholas who falls whose desires again are awakened by her. Um, she's married an old man, um, much, much older than she is. And um, when the old man is out one day, he tries to make a pass at her, um, and she, she puts him off, but at some point agrees to go to bed with him. Hold on, sorry. And um, in order to facilitate that, he has to come up with this plan. So um, it's set up so that John, the husband, will think of Nif Nicholas as this prophetic figure who, who has special powers of divination. So one of the things we're seeing at the outset of this novel is how foolish people can become because of their religious imaginations, that, it, that they can actually get carried away with them. Because the old man is susceptible to what Nicholas says um, in this scene that he set up. Um, he pretends that he's had a view from Christ and that the flood is going to recur. And in order to be prepared for it, he um, encourages John to make these tubs so when the flood does come, all he has to do is cut the ropes and the tubs will be set free and all of them will. So it, it all seems silly and ridiculous, except it's two things. One is Faulkner or Chaucer is having fun with um, the excesses that some people are, the, the susceptibility that some people have um, to their faiths, that they can make too much of it. They can pretend they know in the end times are going to come, or they can predict things, or... Um, So turn to 96, 97, let me see. 96. The carpenter supposed it was despair and caught him by the shoulders mightily, shook him and shouted with asperity, What, Nicholas, hey, look down. Is that a fashion to act, wake up and think upon Christ's passion? I sang you with the cross from elves and spirits and began the spell for use at nights in all four corners of the room and out, across the threshold to and round about. Because Nicholas had been, was, was said that he was sick or laid up in his room, and John went to find out what was happening. He thinks that Nicholas is having this religious vision. Um, 97. Now, John, my dear, my excellent host, swear on your honor here not to repeat a syllable I say, for here are Christ's intentions to betray 
which to a soul puts you among the lost, and vengeance for it at a bitter cost shall fall upon you. If you don't do these things, that is Old Testament. If you don't do these things, God's going to curse you. He's going to bring down these punishments on you. Um, and John is so convinced that he does Nicholas's bidding. Um, now going over, this is where it gets really funny. At the same time that Nicholas, the border, has fallen in love with Al, um, Allison, there's this young student who's also become attracted to her and wants to woo her. So once again, we've got two men wooing a woman on um, 101. This parish clerk, this armorous Absalom, love stricken still and very woe begone, upon the Monday was in the company at Osney with his friends for jollity, and chanced to ask a resident cloister what had become of John the carpenter. The fellow drew him out of church to say, don't know, not been at work since Saturday. I can't say where he is. He goes on like this. So um, Absalom thinks he'll take advantage of the husband's absence and go woo her at the bottom of 101. I shall see Allison and tell her all my love longing and I can hardly miss some favor from her, at least a kiss. That's the courtly lover going to woo the woman in hopes that he may get something. Going over 102. Um, no wonder if I do, I pine and bleed as any lambkin hungering for a teat. Believe me, darling, I'm so deep in love. I croon with longing like a turtle dove. I eat as little as a girl at school. It was not uncommon for a man to show his love by starving himself, to show the suffering that he was willing to endure for his beloved. You go away, she answered, you tomfool. There's no come up and kiss me here for you. I love another, and why shouldn't I too? Better than you by Jesu, Absalom. Take yourself off, or I shall throw a stone and want to get some sleep. You go to hell. Alas, said Absalom, I knew it well. True love is always mocked and girded. All her refusals do is make him more convinced because it's, a, it's his, her refusals um, that confirm his love for her. That if he's tested, he'll show how faithful. So um, he asks for a kiss at the bottom of two. 102. And if I do, will you be off? said she. Promise you, darling, answered Absalom. Get ready then, and I'll put something on, she said. And then she added under breath to Nicholas, Hush, we shall laugh to death. They're finding it funny. They're, they, they are making love and together, and this young lover is coming up and interrupting the two of them. This Absalom went down upon his knees. I am a lord, he thought, and by degrees there may be more to come. The plot may thicken. Mercy, my love, he said, your mouth, my chicken. She flung the window open and then in haste and said, Have done, come on, no more, to, no time to waste. The neighbors here are always on the spy. Um, God. Absalom started wiping his mouth dry. Dark was the night as pitch and black as coal. And at the window out she put her hole. And Absalom and Fortune framed the farce, put up his mouth and kissed her naked arse. Most savorously before he knew of this and back he started, something was amiss. He knew quite well a woman has no beard, yet something rough and hairy had appeared. What have I done, he said. Can that be you, tee-hee, she cried, and clapped the window too. Off he went. He's embarrassed. A few, a few lines down, I'll pay you back for this. Um, so he goes off, and he comes back. He went to a, um, a blacksmith to get a branding iron. 
and he brings the branding iron red hot, calls her out again um, at the bottom of 104, and Nicholas had risen for a piss and thought he could improve upon the jape and make him kiss his arse ere he escaped. And opening the window with a jerk stuck out his arse, a handsome piece of work, buttocks and all, <coughs> as far as to the hunch, said Absalom, all set to make a launch. Speak, pretty bird, I know not where thou art. This Nicholas at once let fly a fart, as loud as if it were a thunderclap. He was near blinded by the blast, poor chap, but his hot iron was ready with a thump. He smote him in the middle of the rump. Now you know what happens. The skin comes scalding off. It's scorched. He lets out this yell and says, Water, water, help for heaven's job. When John the carpenter hears the water, his first assumption is the flood is up. He cuts the ropes and down come the bathtubs and he breaks um, he breaks the limb and um, all the people, all the neighbors come around and Allison and Nicholas um, do all they can to, to make it seem as if the old man is mad. Um, and it ends, 106, all started laughing at the lunacy and streamed upstairs to gape and pry and poke and turn all his sufferings as a joke. Go down, and every one among them laughed and joked, and so the carpenter's wife was truly poked, as if his jealousy to justify an Absalom had kissed her nether eye, and Nicholas is branded on the bum, and God bring all of us to kingdom come. I want to do the, I want to be careful, I want to do the Reeves tale quickly, because I want to get to it so we can deal with both of them. Any comments about this, or what's your response to all the bodily stuff? We live in a very different age, and I, I don't know if you if you guys are found it offensive or funny, or if you were if if reading this made you aware of how different our world is as a Christian Catholic world from we 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 are the product of centuries of a Puritan way of looking at the world. So I'm assuming that most people would might find it hard. I don't know. What's your response, you guys? Had what was your response to this? How did you find it? Sorry? That's an ominous silence. Did you hear Suzanne's comment? She said, that's an ominous silence. Do, do, do you think that it was people are less restrained back then? Wow. Okay, I don't think so. I mean, I think, I think sin has always been with us. You know, and if, if, insofar as we look at our reading, if you go back to the Iliad, I mean, the world has never not had sin. So, you remember the Trojan War was fought because of an adultery involving Paris and Helen. You know, the, it cost um, two people thousands and thousands of lives. Sin is always costly and it's always been with us. Um, What's different about this for me, but wait, let me not, let me not, I, wanna, I don't want to close. I'm interested to hear your comments. Any, any comments about how you found this? It's funny, but it's mean. It's funny, but what? Mean. Oh, yeah, yeah. Suzanne said it's funny, but it's mean. It's really interesting because even, even though what um, Absalom does, you know, with the branding iron can be taken as mean, I think the language of the hole in the fart and you know all of that makes it funnier than what happens in the Reeves tale because in in my mind 
I don't feel the meanness here as much as I do. One of the interesting things to, you know, to, to pull out the Boethius in this, well, let me ask you, is Boethius in this story or not? If so, where is he? Hmm? That's a question for Fred. Is Boethius in the story? Remember Boethius, there is no bad fortune. God is always at work, and God is always at work bringing a justice to what people do. And, and the whole argument that ends, remember the consolation is, God's foreknowledge doesn't preempt or take away man's free will. If it did, there would be no point in giving desserts, rewards, or punishments. Rewards are, and punishments are important for us to learn to be corrected, to, to grow in virtue. And it's interesting to hear in me, for me, is that um, Absalom had kissed his nether eye, Nicholas is branded on the bum. The people are sort of got what they deserve. I mean, you may say John didn't get it, but in one sense, you have the feeling that John is this old man taking advantage of this young girl. That's the way it's presented. And you can say that she and Nicholas get off a little bit too much, and, and I happen to agree with that. But I think Chaucer would, or, yeah, Chaucer would laugh at that anyway because that's going to happen sometimes. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I take away, since nobody's going to answer my question, is that I just find, I, I don't like swear words. I do not like the, the words, you know, when when movies get thick in swear words, it, it really bothers me. I'm, I'm not going to turn a movie off because of them, because it's our modern world. But but I find it I find it um, easier to be aware aware that there's a tendency in our world to look down on the body. Calvin hated the body. Luther hated the body. They both hated the body. The modern world in its Puritan character tends to look down on the body. It's just a very puritanical. I think that's why John Paul's Theology of the Body was such an important work. That, that he made it clear that, that when Christ took on a body, he gave a sacredness to what was already good, or he wouldn't have taken it on. But in the modern world, we just have this contempt, this scorn. We either abuse the body sexually, which is one of our great sins, I think, on our age, or mutilated, or cuttings, or I mean the the things that go on, or take it away with media, things that well, we're, we're online, on a phone. There's no body. We've taken the body out of everything. Um, so the body's in a tough place. And when I read Chaucer, I'm glad to be able to laugh at physical things. We all go to the bathroom. I'm assuming Christ had to go to the bathroom. He was God. Um, we're so embarrassed about natural things. There's such a disdain. And one of the things that I enjoy about Faulkner is that he makes it easier for me to laugh at my own body, to, to, to see a humor in it, and to get rid of this contempt, this, ange this angelic standing above our body. I, I just think it's so harmful. So I know a lot of people, and I know a lot of Catholics who are offended by these stories. I'm <laughs> I'm glad to be able to laugh at them because that's our body. It's who we are. It's who we are. Let's go to the Reeves tale quickly. 
Um, I, I want to do this just quickly, take you through some passages. Remember that these two students leave um, to go ground their own um, meal because the miller in town has a reputation for cheating people. The way the miller is described is that he has a couple of knives. He just has this arrogant attitude, like he's ready to fight all the time. Um, and um, so we're going to get a contrasting picture between the miller who told the first story and, and the miller in the story. In the prologue, um, the reeve wants to get back at the miller for telling a story on reeves, on a carpenter, on page 106. As I'm a man, I'll pay you back for it, he says, um, going over on 107. Same as my hair, my heart full of mold, unless I be like them, their medal of fruit, them that gets rottener as they um, ripen to it. He goes on and on talking about how he's aging and getting old. He's like a rotted fruit. Um, yet we have four live coals, as I can show. So even though he's aging, he says, there's still five, four coals alive in me. Lies, boasting, greed, and rage will always glow. Those are the sparks among the ancient embers. So as one ages, he's saying the tendency to lie, to boast, to be greedy, and to get angry stay with you. And he wants to do everything he can to get back on the, on the uh, miller. And um, the host says to him at the bottom of one said, our host, on hearing all this sermonizing, began to speak as lordly as a king and said, What does it come to all this wit? What spend the morning talking holy writ? The devil that makes a preacher of a reeve turns cobblers into doctors, I believe. He says, Get out with the story. So the reeve tells his story of these two students who go to ground their grain. The miller is known for his dishonesty. Um, so they want to grind it themselves, but they're tricked into believing that their horse is gone, and they go off looking for it, and um, when they do, the miller has his wife take the grain that the two students have left behind and bake it into a cake, and he'll claim that it's gone. So when they come back, the... Um, The miller invites them to stay for the evening, and they get drunk. Page 114. Properly pasted was his miller's head. Pale drunk he was. He passed the stage of red. Hiccuping through the nose, he talked and trolled, as if he'd asthma or a heavy cold. To bed he goes, his wife and he together. She was as jolly as a jay in feather. Having well wet her whistle from the ladle, and by her bed she planted down the cradle to rock the baby or to give it up. You know that they fall asleep and the snoring is so loud that the two men um, are kept awake by it one or, or find it hard to sleep. On page 115, Alan, the clerk, gives a poke to John and says, Are you awake? Did you ever hear such sang for, God, for guidance sake? There's family prayers for you among um, they melt the naughties. Wildfire comes dune and burn them up the body. He's using a... And um, a, a sort of Scottish idiom there um, that's peculiar to him. So Chaucer's aware of those idioms and can use it. But never you mind, all, the, um, all shall be for the best. I tell you, John, as sure as I'm a man, I'm going to have that wench there if I can. 
The law grants easement when the things um, gan amiss. For John, there is a law that gan like this. If in one point a person be aggrieved, then another he shall be relieved. So the fact that the fact that um, the miller took advantage of them gives them the right to get back. So Alan wants to bed the miller's daughter. She's 20 years old. They have a son who's, I think, within his first year. Um, so Alan goes into bed with the daughter. The bottom of 115. Alan rose up towards the wench. She crept. The wench lay flat upon her back and slept. And ere she saw him, he had drawn so nigh it was too late for her to give a cry. To put it briefly, they were soon at one. Now, Alan, play, for I will speak of John. John lies there for a while, and finally he decides to go to bed with a miller's wife. So he moves the cradle, um, um, and when, um, here on 116, when she gets up to take a pee and comes back to bed, she's misled on the middle of 116. Um, she found the bed and thinking not but good since he was cert she was certain where the cradle stood yet knew not where she was for it was dark she well and fairly crept in with the clerk then lay quite still and tried to go to sleep John waited for a while then gave a leap and thrust himself upon this worthy wife it was the merriest fit in all her life for John went deep and thrust away like mad it was a jolly life for either lad till the morning you know what happens when the morning comes the two men make their way back to bed, and um, Alan, um, mistaking the bed because the crib had been misplaced, ends up falling on the bed that the, the miller's in at the top of 118. He falls on her, and um, <coughs> a, a, a confusion ensues. The, miller fall, the miller's fall started her out of her sleep, up she screamed, Holy Cross of Broman, Bromholm to keep. Um, us, Lord, into thy hands to thee I call. Simon, wake up, the devil's among us. So the miller, the two, the miller, no, sorry. When, when John crawls into bed, he crawls, he crawls, no, John comes, sorry, God, I'm getting this. John crawls into bed. No, sorry. John comes into bed where the miller is asleep and wakes him up. And when, the mil when he speaks what he said about what happened with his wife, he gets really upset. The two men quarrel and fight. And when they do, John falls on his wife. Um, she, she's awakened. And her response is to hit Alan on the head. Um, or John, sorry, but hits her husband instead, page 118. Raising her stick, she crept up in the dark and hoping to hit Alan. It was her fate to smite the miller on his shining pate, and down he went shouting, Oh God, I'm dying. The clerks then beat him up and left him lying. Throwing on their clothes, they took their horse and the ground meal, and off they went, of course. And as they passed the mill, they took the cake made of their meal the girl was told to bake. And thus the bumptious miller was well beaten, and done out of the supper they had eaten, and done out of the money that was due for grinding Alan's corn, who beat him too. His wife was plumb, so was his daughter. Look, that comes of being in a miller and a crook. You can imagine how the miller was hearing all of this. I heard this proverb when I was a kid. 
Do evil and be done by as you did. Tricksters will get a tricking, so, to, so say I, and God that sits in majesty on high. Bring all this company, great and small, to glory. Thus I paid out the miller with my glory. Okay, let me stop. What do you make of these two stories, and how are they different from the Night's Tale? The Knight's Tale involved um, chivalry and honorable behavior for the most part, and um, they they behaved out of um, a feeling of love and, and honor. These are just yeah. And honor, yeah. and these people are just trying to one up each other, and uh, yeah, they're they're misbehaving. You're being nice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else's response? This is this is very di well. It's a well. Re remember, we've had something now. When we went through hell, when we went through Dante's hell. Wait, this is really important. When we when we started the the Commedia, we entered hell, and then went up purgatory and into heaven. In the Commedia, Dante set everything against final ends. Things are already done, right? People in hell are there. People in heaven are there. People in purgatory are on their way to heaven. It's final ends. That has to do with final things. We're not in the world. He's presenting images of people who've left the world, who are doing what they did in the world. So he's made it possible for, un for us to understand the significance of what people in the world do by showing us their final end, what they will, what will be made of that, right? So we see what happens with lust or gluttony or avarice or whatever it is, fraud. But he, we're in a world of final ends. Dante does that so we can see more clearly the effects of our actions here. When we're not in final lands, things are not decided. But everything in the Commedia is grotesque comedy. It's all funny. Even in hell. I mean, it's to watch those characters do something. It's Chaucer's set us in a world that's not in final lands. We're not in a world of final lands. He's showing us the world as it is, underway. It's under construction. People are moving on. And yet, it's grotesque comedy. He's showing us how foolish, stupid, comic people are. And in both of these stories, e even if they don't have the nobility or the dignity or the sense of honor that we find in The Night's Tale, they get their comeuppance. It's, it's, it's just another instance of what Boethius said. God's justice, God's not never here. He's He's always at work, and it's really interesting to watch what Chaucer does, because no god is outside this world punishing people. All that happens to them, they bring on themselves. And Chaucer can laugh at it because it's stupid. Here, let, let me put it differently. I, I, I know from watching movies that adultery is pretty rampant. It's just a, it's a commonplace in movies today. Um, we know from our daughter was in Italy for eight years and, and um, she became attached to a young man and it looked like they might be married, but they didn't. But the two of them are friends and the friendship goes on. But one of the things that she learned in Italy was that adultery is rampant. I mean, it's just people make a place for it. It, it just goes on. 
And I know for movies, it goes on here in America. We're a Puritan country. We're not Italians. But it goes on. Um, when I look at this, it just seems to me, if you watch what Nicholas does with John in the Miller's Tale, and if you watch what the men do and the Miller does to trick the, the students and what the students do to get back, I mean, one of the things that you have to, you have to say when you look at the, read these stories is, look at the, what's the word, what's the, what's the, look at the things that people do, look at the ends that they go to, look at the ends that people go to in order to have an affair. I mean, people make, I mean, imagine all the, all the arrangements that people make this, to keep secrets or hidden or sins, you know, whatever they do, a, a great deal is made in order to get away with sin. And it is here. I mean, people just go through a lot to, you know, to accomplish what they set out to accomplish. And yet it all gets, they all get bitten by it. They're all just, something happens to bring it all done, down. The, the term, I've used this term before, but I want to I want to put it out here because it's too important. There's this term that we get from Plato and that is essential to Boethius. In Latin, is it is bonum est diffusivum sui, if I remember. Bonum est diffusivum sui. Goodness is diffusive of itself. That's straight from Boethius. Goodness is diffusive. Of it will always reassert itself. Always. One of the central tenets of Boethius is evil cannot overcome good. Good. Evil is a privation. It's not an actual thing. If it did, it would stand independently of good. There's only one source of everything. It's God. We, we're not Protestants. We don't believe in an inherent evil. Evil is a privation. It's a turning from good. So evil will never defeat God. We've gone through this with Boethius. Evil will never defeat God. Never. Evil will always undo itself. The cost of it may be tragic. People's lives may be lost. But there's no way evil's going to win. And in every one of these stories, <laughs> these, these characters keep... I mean, whatever happens in the story, they're always undone. Something happens to bring them out of, you know, whatever it is they're culpable of and, and in a comic way. So Dante, or Chaucer always leaves us laughing at the foolishness that, the, the foolish things that people do and the things they bring on themselves. So in that sense, it's a very Catholic world. It's full of hope and faith. Um, the goodness will, no matter what stupid things people do, it's not a reason for condoning them or doing them. People do them. But there should, no, there should not be a question about the outcome of them. It doesn't mean we're supposed to be passive or watch things, but Chess are showing us things that, that by their nature, in the stories that we've read so far, the characters just undo themselves. It's, it's, and they always bring a justice on themselves. I mean, they get punished in some way. Do you have a response? Any any thoughts or comments or and remember the rhyme scheme. I mean, when you're reading, Nicholas turn his rear end towards the back, you know, and thinking he's so smart he's going to pass gas, and 
all of it's to rhyme. I mean, while all of this happens, Chaucer's unfolding it in a rhyme scheme. So there's this beauty and order, even during this, what we're going to call, what I'm calling grotesque comedy. Scatological the, comedy. Hmm? It's got a scatological element to it. Yeah, it's not scat. It's, but it's it's got a scatolo It's not scatological comedy. That because that's that's a comedy in filth and you know this is there's something scatological, you know, dealing with rears and passing gas and you know things like that. But go ahead, Melody. Yes. Out of curiosity, I mean, I'm I'm not a huge fan of potty humor. Um, and I, I kind of considered that this, but I mean, is this going to be a theme throughout the entire book or each of these stories? Are there, I mean, I understand they're getting back at one another, um, and the, the humor is in that, but I'm just curious is, I mean, is that going to be an overriding theme as the potty mm -hmm. humor that's in it? I, I'm not going to use potty humor, even if you are. Because um, that that to me is to debunk it, and I don't want I think too much of Chaucer to do that. So I'm okay. I'm not I'm not going to go down there with body humor. But I, that's a hard question to ask, you know, Melody. There's this humor for sure that runs through. There's a certain there's a certain thread. I'm going to mute you guys for a second, if just to and if anybody wants to come on, come on. There's a certain thread of humor that is constant. So the humor is there. The, the spirit of it won't be as openly scatological, you know, with rears and... But it will be there. Um, Where's his tale? Sweet, Doc. What, what we're going to... What we're going to find... We're going to read Chaucer's tale next week, which is going to be... It's just... It's silly. He, the, the, the host is going to tell him to shut up because he can't tell the story. But the other stories are all going to be about church officials. There's going to be a little... A bit of scatological humor in one of them in the sense that it has to do with a guy passing gas on a wheel and Chaucer's having fun again. But it's not as um, as um, dense as it is in the beginning. When we get to those church officials, what we're going to see is Chaucer's critique of the church. This is before the, the um, reformers come on and are outraged by that corruption. Wycliffe's on the border already. Because the church is, I mean, the church has been corrupt forever. It's never not been. The church has never been pristine. Um, we're going to look at a summoner, a friar, and a partner. All church officials. And all of them are scoundrels. So Chaucer is going to be looking at men in the church and will have very little good to say about any of them. So in, in my mind, it's one of his serious critiques of the church. One of the things that I would pose to you is take a look at what the reformers did with the church. I mean, they went after dogmas. Chaucer's concern is men and what they do, not the dogmas. He, he leaves the dogmas untouched. The problem isn't the dogmas of the church. They're not going to, those are timeless. Problem is the people in the church. So we're going to look at three, three men, and all three of them are in some way scoundrels. I don't think it's going to be as openly vicious as it is between the, the Miller but the antagonism and the wanting to get back is, is, is overriding. What we're going to look at after that are women. And the wife of Bath, I mean, some of the feminists hold her up as a sort of prototype of modern feminism. I, I'm not going to, that's not the view I have of her. 
Um, but Charles is going to look at w- women. I don't want to close this down, but I, I, I think when we look at the wife of Bath, you're going to find things that remind you of the men. There's something not good in her. But the other women we will look at will be all remarkable, absolutely remarkable women. So if you, it's really interesting to me, if you look at the men characters and line them up, except for the knight, and he is a figure of nobility, of real virtue, the men are not very good characters. It's the women. And one of the, I'm, I'm not going to, I don't want to close this down. One of the questions I will ask when we get to the women is why? What's the, is this inherent in men and women? Is there something? That's the easiest question of the night. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got to get a hold of Mike and t- ask him how I delete characters from our. <laughs> okay, one more question. One more. No, no, you have, you. that's all. That's all you get. Robert. No, please, please. I'm so kidding. Go, go. I'm kidding. Like I'm two, kidding. Go. Two or three stories picked out that we read next, but they're not in in sequential order. So. Do you want us to continue to read until we get those no, three down? No, 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 That's a, no. Yeah, you, you, I'm, we're only going to discuss the ones that I've assigned. Okay. Um, we're not going to discuss, there's just too many, and I don't, I don't want to give that time to, talk, to Chaucer. I've okay. tried to pick out what, to me, are the best. The opening need to be held together for the reason I've given it. We're watching a real decline from courtly romance and manners and virtue into... Um, a debased world. And Chaucer's very clear, and one of the beauties of that is that he finds a humor in all of it. That he, he's able to laugh, he's able, he's able to help us laugh at our human foolishness in a way that very few writers, have. Aristophanes in the Greek world and James Joyce in the modern world, but um, Chaucer has a stronger faith than either of the other men. He what he does to me is um, extraordinary. We're just going to read these three, the one on the, the church officials, and then a group of, of um, tales in which women are the central figures. And one of the reasons I want to do that is I'm not pulling this out to weigh things. I, I'm not trying to weigh them. I'm, I'm pulling them out because it's there. Um, the, the wife of Bath, I don't think, is an attractive woman. I mean, she, she belongs in that group of other people who are who are flawed but there are several women in here who are extraordinary just extraordinary and I want to look at that and then ask that question what's <laughs> not the way not the way you did but I want to ask that question what is why does he do this what's are, are women just inherently better do will you not close this down Melanie give me a minute um, are women inherently better what what's goes on that um, this is one of the greatest poets in the English language, truly. This is the height of the Christian Middle Ages. And very few of the men come off. The, the, the one man is the knight, Theseus, and, you know, and, and the knight himself who tells the story is a good man. He's fought in wars. He knows honor. He knows virtue. Um, he's been trained at court. There's, it, it shows the possibility that men can become good. But then you've got all these other figures, and um, and yet the women, um, or at least as a number, are remarkable. I don't want to close. I don't want to give anything away. But I want to ask why. What's we have to look at the stories to answer that question. 
unless you enter into them with a prejudice. <coughs> oh, you guys. Any last comments on Chaucer? Um, Bob, I really, I, I liked both tales, the Reeves tale and the Miller's tale. But I have to say that my favorite part of what we read this week was the Reeves prologue. He speaks so eloquently about growing old. Well done, yeah. Uh, I loved it, especially what he said at the, at, the, at the bottom of the first page. What we can't do no more, we talk about and rake the ashes when the fire is out. <laughs> I rolled when I read that, and he goes on and on. It, it's, it's quite, uh, you know, he, he knows he's past his prime, and but he's, he still has, uh, he recognizes that he has some faults. I, yeah. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. I'm really glad when you guys pick out things and read them. Genuinely, I'm, I wish you'd do it more. I'm glad when you do. Because I, I, there's no way to cover all the passages that I'm, I'm trying to pick out sort of basics and we miss a lot. So I'm just glad when you guys do. I'm glad you read that, Mike. Um, um, the, the poetry is beautiful. And we're reading it. You know, I, I, I've read that opening of the prologue in Middle English just to give you a feel for it. There's a lot you wouldn't understand in Middle English. The language is so different. Um, and some of the colloquial, the idioms are so different from our own. Um, what Coghill did in this translation is remarkable, but the poetry is really beautiful. It, he, um, he and Shakespeare, he and Shakespeare and probably James Joyce, but Chaucer and Shakespeare for sure um, are in some ways two of the greatest poets. John Donne, Gerard Manny Hopkins, those are lyric poets. You know, they, they write smaller forms. Um, but Shakespeare and Chaucer, extraordinary what they do with language. Um, okay, next week um, we'll do the next three tales and briefly look at Chaucer's tale. I'll ask you why why Chaucer presents himself. He, he's just presented this bumbling idiot. That's a serious question for me. Why does he do that? He's the one who did this whole remarkable thing. He has a gift for language that few people do. And he's told all these stories over it with this beauty, and yet when, he, when he's asked out, when he's called out by the host to tell the story, the host finally tells him, shut up, he can't <coughs> listen to me anymore, it's so bad. Why does Chaucer do that? And then we'll look at the three, the three officials, church field officials. One of the things I'd like to ask concerning those, just to look ahead while you're reading is, what is Chaucer saying about our church? I'm asking that really seriously. There's, this is a group. They belong together. They're all church officials. Um, they're on their way to Canterbury. It's a pilgrimage in honor of St. Thomas Becket, who was a martyr. And yet he, he shows these three church officials um, to be anything but virtuous. What's he doing? Okay, you guys enjoy Chaucer. Um, when you can, read him to each other. He's delightful to read, you know that. It's just funny to hear. Um, and please write me. Let me know your thoughts on, on getting back, what you would like to do. Um, if, if you'd like to include a movie or have a, just a meal. Um, and I'm going to get back. To, when I, I'll, 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 we'll talk again next week. And after we've talked a little bit more, I'll get back to Allison. But 
Um, tentatively for now, let's plan to be back in a classroom after we finish Chaucer. We'll take a break. Oh, by the way, do you guys want to take off next Tuesday because it's Memorial, is it Memorial Day weekend? <clears throat> do you guys want to take off Tuesday? Is that going to be a busy weekend for you guys? <clears throat> take off? Yeah. Okay. I say yes. Okay. Yes. It looks like you're all saying yes. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> so by the time we finish, you guys should have finished Chaucer. You got a couple of weeks. Um, you guys have a good Memorial Day weekend, and let me know what your thoughts are, okay? Um, Maria, you weren't here earlier. I want to hear from you. Hello. Hi. There. There you are. Um, I asked everybody, um, we're going to get back in a classroom, and um, we're, we're going to have a, a dinner or and maybe a movie. So I just would like everybody to respond. I've also sent out um, Chaucer Guide, so anybody who wants it, if you could offer donations, we'd be grateful. But all of you let me know by emails what your, what your pleasure is on, the, on getting back together, okay? Okay, thank you. Have a good Memorial weekend, you guys. You too. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, yeah. Good night. I, I, I dropped off. I had a technical problem. I... Did you tell us which tales we are to read for next time? Yeah, they're on that list, Mike. But I'll send it out. I'll send it out right now on an email okay. to the group. And okay. are we meeting next week or no. is it canceled? No, uh, no, no meeting next week. All right, great. Thank Bar you. Barbecue next week. All right. Bye, Bye. you guys. Bye.